So I, I hope uh, everybody can hear me. And then if uh, suddenly I move too much, you can always bring me back and I'll try to, to speak in the microphone. So tonight, I, I don't want to be too technical, but I wanted to look a little bit at what's called uh, the conditioning factors of consciousness. So it's kind of like, I won't go into detail about what's called the NAMA factor, N-A-M-A. -A. And so it is five constituent of consciousness. And so the Buddha says, when they're there, you have consciousness. When consciousness is there, you've got the five factor. So basically he's saying they come together. But of course, when we talk about it, it seems to be sequential. And so we've already talked about two. We talked about contact, we talked about feeling tone, and then the last three are perception, intention, and attention. And so tonight I want to look a little bit the connection in a way between, you could say, contact, feeling tone, and perception. Because again, you might have uh, experience, we have different feeling tone upon contact, but also what will determine the feeling tone will be very much the perception, the perception of the object of contact. So let me give just a kind of a example. Uh, I go to this place, to this center in Austria. And the first time I ever went there, many years ago, I go into the meditation room and I see this beautiful bouquet of lilies. And I think, oh, that's nice to have lilies in a meditation room. You don't often have them. And so a day pass and whenever I see the lily, I think, they're really nice, these lilies. Second day path, well, yeah, they're really nice, these lilies. And then I decide to go near the lilies. And I discover that they are plastic. <laughs> and immediately the feeling tone changes because they're still nice, but it's not the same. And then you can really see. So you have the contact, you have the feeling tone, but the feeling tone will depend upon the perception of the object. And I think that's what kind of something which we have to also look at, kind of to notice a little bit, the influence of perception in terms of feeling tone. I mean, I remember many years ago, many, many years ago, uh, I used to live next to the, in, when I was a nun in Korea, I used to live next to the precept master. And he was a little tough and he wanted things a certain way. And so I, and he was our neighbor because we we're a little out of the way and he was really our neighbor. And so one day, I don't know, I come out of the bedroom and he comes up to me and said, you did this, you're a terrible person. He's kind of, kind of shout at me. Then I said, but I did not do it. It's not me. It's not me. <laughs> and then he said, oh, it's not you. 
all right then. <laughs> and so what was interesting was that, you know, if I had done it, the feeling tone was very unpleasant. But if I had not done it, oh, then it was okay. And it kind of was kind of like the perception shifted very fast. But sometimes you can't do that. So even if somebody tells you, I have not done it, you feel so invested in the unpleasant feeling tone that you don't want to believe it sometimes. So it's kind of very interesting because you might have the shift in perception, but what if the shift in perception doesn't make the shift in feeling tone because the feeling tone is too strong? So you kind of, you also have that. Or my best story in terms of perception is uh, many years ago I had a friend, he was a monk in Thailand. And in Thailand when you, you beg your food, so you have to accept whatever comes in the bowl. And so there was this really devout lady and every time she gave him these really nice crunchy nuggets and he had a very pleasant feeling tone when he ate them until he asked what they were. And he was told they were fried ends. So after that, he went on another street. <laughs> so again, you know, you have, it's very interesting, the feeling tone, the perception, the contact. And also, the perception of how unpleasant it's going to be. And then here we can really see, in a way, slightly the underlying tendency. Uh, there used to be this program, but it doesn't seem to exist anymore, which I think is a pity, because I thought it was a fascinating program on TV, which I used to get when I idle in front of the TV. I used to do that. And then it was fear factor. So they had to have these people going through this really difficult task, you know. But one was really interesting. It was they put in water these uh, electric eels, like fish, which gives you electric charge. So the first person had the perception that this was really going to be terrible. And what was interesting is that then that increased the unpleasant feeling tone. So she went in and did this and did very bad at the thing. The next one thought, I can do better than this lady. I definitely can do better than this lady. And so she went in and so she was going perception regardless of the feeling tone, I'm doing better than this lady. So this lady goes and takes, I don't know, five instead of the other two. Then the third one realized, this actually is not very painful. It looks painful, but actually it's not very painful. So then she arrives with no amplification whatsoever in the tank, and she gets 15 out. And so to me what was interesting was from the first to the third, how the, the contact was the same. But the perception changed and the feeling tone changed. So it's kind of, in a way, 
also looking at that, also how we influenced by others' perception. I mean, this is another thing, you know. You think, oh, that's not bad. And then somebody comes along and says, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. And then they give, they kind of transmit to you their feeling tone. And then you think, oh yeah, this is terrible. When you did not think this before. So, I personally feel it's very, the, the perception and the feeling tone is so connected that then it's really, I think, in daily life, it becomes such an interesting exploration to see how the feeling tone shifts with the perception, how we can be influenced by the perception of others and many different things of that nature. Then you have another thing which really influence feeling tone. And this is what I would call knowledge. You see, again, we have this assumption that this, the contact, we see an object, we hear a sound, and that in a way the feeling tone is in the object. So it's a beautiful piece of art. It's no matter what, it's a beautiful piece of art or beautiful piece of music. But then you have the fact that if you have more knowledge, this is going to change your feeling tone in connection to what you come in contact with. Like recently, I was in Korea. And one of the things I love about being in Korea is hearing people speaking Korean. And if you have enough of them around, they really, there is a really special sound to it. And when I hear it, oh, I love this. If you only have one, it does not, you don't have it as much. But if you're in a market and hear everybody, I love, it's kind of, for me, it's a very pleasant feeling talk. But if you don't have that experience, having lived 10 years there, knowing the language, the, the way it sings and everything, you hear it and you don't know what it is. It sounds. And it does not add much to the contact. You don't know what it is. Oh, it's like if you go in some um, uh, art gallery in Seoul and you go and look at calligraphies. So you look at the calligraphy and if you're not an expert calligrapher, you just see black on white and you think, yes, it flows, it's nice. But you have somebody who really know about calligraphy and they can say 30 minutes in front of it and say, oh, that one. <laughs> and you know, the, you know, and you kind of, you're sitting there trying to see what they can see in it that make them feel so strongly that you cannot see whatsoever. To me, it's fascinating to see somebody with such knowledge and you try to, but you don't have the knowledge, which in a way don't give you the same feeling tone. So I think that's also something interesting to see knowledge in terms of perception connected to feeling tone. Then there is another one, and this is more in contact with people. 
And I think this is kind of like a perception, you know, that we need to have in terms of, to some level, we need to figure out a little bit, even if people don't say anything, what are they, what are they thinking? You know, like you meet somebody, you might know them, you might not know them, but generally, to some degree, we are a, a human being, we are an organism, which need to be able to detect, is this person dangerous or not? Are they friendly or not? And things of that nature. So then, we have a big uh, array of perception of others. So we perceive them in terms of what we see, of what we hear, but also then start to be this perception about what the other person thinks, what other the person thinks for themselves, and also what the other person thinks about me. I mean, they might tell you, then you would know, but if don't, they don't tell you, this is a little tricky. And I think there, I feel we have to be very careful about using psychology to help you to interpret how you're going to perceive somebody else. And I, I'm really, this has become part of my practice actually, trying not to go into this over psychological perception. Are they doing this because of that? And psychological interpretation of whatever nature. And it's also very easy to collude, and you have three of you, and then after 10 minutes, you decide they you know, have the Oedipus complex, or poor eternus, or who knows. On actually very little evidence. And some of the evidence might be, you feel a funny feeling too. Are you trying to guess? And to me, this is fascinating, what we decide, what the person must be thinking. You know, many years ago, I had a lot of difficulty with one person. And I had no idea why. I really had no idea why. I just thought, you know, we don't like each other or, you know, I, I really did not know. And I did not really presume. I just thought, you know, there is some problem here, but I really had not uh, any perception of it. And then she finally was so upset with me and she, so, she told me why. That was fascinating. She told me, you are like my sister. <laughs> and then I thought, ah, that's good. That's a good explanation, you know? You know, then, I mean, you know, I was not her sister, but obviously uh, she saw something there that was not there, but... So to me, what was fascinating is that that's what she perceived me. When she saw me, she saw me maybe half, but the other half, she saw her sister and all the problems she had with her sister. And I thought it was fascinating. And after that, I thought, okay, okay, now I know. So in a way, this feeling tone and the perception, I find that so interesting. And then there is another aspect where we can look at perception 
is how we are, I would say, meaning-making machine. We really, things have to make sense. I mean, this to me was kind of like a big uh, revelation from Stephen, but many, many years ago, we're doing some, I'm translating some Zen text, Korean text, Korean talks. And so we kind of, you know, writing along. And then Stephen said, this does not make sense. I said to him, what does it matter? It's Zen, it doesn't make sense, <laughs> who cares? But he said, no, 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 even Zen has to make sense. So I thought, all right, even Zen has to make sense, okay. But that was very helpful. I became a better translator after that. So things have to make sense. Things have to have meaning. And then if we bring that meaning-making to feeling thoughts, because as I said before, we have the contact, then you have the, I mean, it's not then you have the feeling tone, you have the contact and together you have the feeling tone and together you have the perception. But because we don't see the feeling tone because it's too fast and because they generally become feeling sensation very quickly, then what happens is that what we go into mini making is with the feeling sensation. So you could have a contact, immediately let's say you have an unpleasant feeling tone, but that immediately becomes this mm, unpleasant feeling sensation, and then, then you notice it. You see, oh, this is, I'm feeling something which is different and which is not very nice. And then it starts to make sense. So then we go, well, I must be feeling this because of that, or I must be feeling this because of that, or it must be anxiety, or it must be fear, or it must be this or that. But maybe not. I mean, maybe yes, but maybe not. And to me, this is what, from the mindfulness of the feeling tone, another thing we can you know, we develop is just the mindfulness of the feeling sensation. Because often we will miss the feeling tone. And then what we'll be with which will be the feeling sensation. And then can we be with the sensation itself, the feeling sensation, instead of going into the meaning? Because as soon as we go into the meaning, then generally we amplify. We associate. And sometimes, and to me that's a way you can know if it's really important and you have to do something or not, is to kind of, oh, suddenly you feel something a little different or a little unpleasant. And then how long does it last? Again, back to that question. And just to how does it feel? And how long does it last? Because this is something I kind of explore. If I have a little something, something happened, contact, unpleasant, I get this unpleasant feeling sensation. And instead of going da 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 da, da how long will it last? And that's very interesting. 
Because sometimes it goes within 10 minutes. Sometimes it's a little there for an hour, and then it goes. And then if you remember the contact, it comes back. Then you wait another hour, you think about it, it's not there anymore. And to me, this is a way to see, is it light? And I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to amplify it. Or is it something that is recurrent, keeps coming? And then, in a way, it's less looking at the feeling sensation and more at the conditions. I don't always feel that way. What happens when I feel that way? What are the conditions for that? And then, in a way, I would say, looking at the conditions is kind of like moving from the plain perception to going into wisdom, into insight. What is going on here? And from there, I'd like to move a little on to looking again at vipassana, the looking deeply, the experiential inquiry, which personally I would totally link with wisdom and compassion. To me, in a way, often we equate compassion with feeling. If I feel compassion, I'm compassionate. If I don't feel compassion, then forget it. You know, Next time when the train comes, compassionate train, then I'll be compassionate. When personally I think what we're trying to develop here is what I would call a wise, creative compassion. And I think this actually comes from this experiential inquiry. If we know for ourselves, experientially, for example, that ultimate change, to me this is in a way what can really help us when we are with people. Again, back to perception and feeling tone. Do I see the person now? Or do I see the person with the perception previous perception with a previous feeling tone, instead of considering the perception and the feeling tone now. But secondly, can I actually move beyond, in a way, the naming, the commenting, I know this person, they like this, they like that, we have this history and everything. And to me, what the beauty of change is one of the things my teacher used to say a lot in Korea, your life rests upon a single breath. And can we see each other in that way? When I'm with another person, before I start to have all kind of perception and feeling tone about them, can I start from the standpoint, this person's life rests upon a single breath. It's fleeting. Can I have a compassion for that fleetingness. And to me, if we do this, it really changes our relationship because we're actually meeting the person now instead of meeting the history, the old perception, the old feeling tone. Then you have another aspect, which to me is connected with compassion, is the fact that there is a potential for change. When we meet somebody or when we meet ourselves, 
do we meet from the standpoint I can change at some point? Or do we meet the person or ourselves, I'm stuck, I will never change. To me, this is a compassionate move to see the potential for change. But then there is a question about change. So in a way, we all come to this retreat. And I presume we come to this retreat, not just, of course, to meditate, but also with this idea that there is this intention, this motivation, this aspiration for wisdom, for compassion, for peace, for clarity, whatever it is. So then you have this aspiration. And then the question is, what do I want? Do I want a radical, permanent transformation? Or will I accept a moderate, conditional transformation? To me, this is something we have to be very careful about. That at times, you can have a radical transformation. But it seems to me this is more in terms of certain habits, certain aspects. Generally, you don't have like, suddenly you become a totally other person. <laughs> so you can have, I think, because you see, I think we have to be very careful not to think of meditation as a program of eradication. <laughs> I mean, Stephen talked about the five obstacles. And instead, I would say it's creative engagement with what stops us, what is in the way. And sometimes, if everything comes together, yeah, there can be what I would call radical, relatively permanent transformation. So you see yourself stopping doing something, like something you did to protect yourself or whatever it was, and you stop doing it. And generally, you will stop doing it because the power of the creative awareness got stronger, but also because of compassion. Because you realize how painful that habit was for yourself and others. But I think we have to be careful to think what I'm looking for is just eradication, total radical transformation all the time. That I don't think it's possible. I think time to time you might have one of those, but not all the time. And so in a way, how, what, when we think about transformation, to me what I find interesting with transformation is that in a way there is two types of transformation. There is, in a way, the transformation which comes from accepting something. And I think a lot of the practice is about that. By accepting something, then it's transformed because in a way we don't add any amplification to it. But also I think, can we look at transformation more in terms of a diminishing of intensity and diminishing of length? And so what is striking is that when we start to meditate, when we start on the path, 
at the beginning, the transformation seems more radical. But this is in contrast to before. But the more you meditate, the transformation will be much less radical. And it will be much more about this lessening of the intensity, lessening of the length of time we are caught. So to me, this is also a compassionate move to how do I look at change? Do I bring this creative wise compassion to my notion of change? Then the second thing we are inquiring into is in a way what's called dukkha. And dukkha often translated as suffering has many different aspects. But one aspect which is interesting in terms of the feeling tone is dukkha dukkha. It's kind of what really is considered mental pain, physical pain, psychological pain, when it's really painful. And so here, what would be the point, you know, where you could say, you know, we have enough suffering in the world. What would be the point of like, you know, inquiring into the pain? And then I think we have to be careful here what we mean by this inquiring into pain, into dukkha. Sometimes we can explore the condition for the dukkha if it's repetitive. If it's repetitive, you can notice, oh, I don't always have pain, but in this condition, it happens. But to me, it's also about if we really experience it for ourselves, oh, this is painful. Then we see two things, that it's painful, but more that it's isolating. Nobody can experience our pain for us. However empathetic, sympathetic, you cannot have the headache of somebody else. You cannot have the stomachache of somebody else. And to me, this knowing of dukkha is really about that. If we really know that, then the pain is not abstract. And then when somebody is in pain, we can have this creative, wise compassion. And at the same time, the humility of knowing, I cannot experience this for them. So in a way, kind of being careful, kind of sometimes you think, you know, well, why don't you get yourself together, you know? I mean, you have had it a little bit, now it should be passed or whatever. You know, often uh, that's what people say. Um, people often say that, uh, in some of the article I read sometime about death, you know, that somebody has died. And so at the beginning, their friends are very friendly and very helpful. But after a month and a half, they say, oh, are you over it now, you know? And it's like not realizing that this is a shock to the system. And this is going to be felt for a longer time than a month and a half. And so in a way, how can we be tender with the pain of others? How can we be tender with our own pain? And then there is a last one. And the last one is called anatta, 
N A A T T A, and generally it's translated as no self, and then Stephen translated translates it as not self. And so basically, this is interesting back to the perception. You see, at one level, if we do enough meditation, we know we don't have a self. We know we don't have an intrinsic, solid, self-existing self. So we have uh, generally read about it, heard about it, and we think, yes, yes, yes. We are empty <laughs> of existing self. But to me, this is a little abstract, and I think that's why it's a little difficult to inquire experientially into this notion of not-self. I mean, Buddhist tradition, I've developed many different ways to do that. But generally, I find that on the meditation, it's a little difficult to kind of, you know, it's a little abstract. Change is so much more organic, experiential. But to me, what is interesting to look at is that, okay, we're not, we don't have an interesting self. So basically, what are we if we're not a separately existing self? Then we basically are a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And that's why it's relatively stable and relatively changing. So let's say this flow of inner condition meeting outer condition, it's very unlikely that tomorrow you'll have a pink rabbit instead. This is, that would be a really radical transformation, <laughs> which I think, you know, unless there is some magic trick, unlikely. I mean, that I die in the night, that's more possible than becoming a pink rabbit. So there is relative stability and relative change. But to me, what is more interesting in terms of not-self is to see that often what we do is we grasp at one of the conditions that forms the self and we reduce ourselves to it. And that actually is very painful because we are this multi-perspectival being with thought, feeling, relationship, etc., etc. And suddenly we become just one thought or we become one sensation or we become one emotion or we become one problem. And then it feels very painful because it's, everything has to be it, which then amplify it. And to me, that's what is interesting to look at in terms of anatta, in terms of self, not self. When is it that I reduce myself to just one condition? And how does I experience myself when I don't do that? And often there is this feeling of spaciousness. But it doesn't mean I don't exist, but I experience myself in a different way. But we can also do that to others. And that I think also is, again, not compassionate. 
when we see somebody and we reduce them to just one element. I mean, it could be a good element or it could be a bad element. And we decide that person is just sad. So again, it's very tight. So in a way, anatta of ourselves and others is actually to really open ourselves to the, all the conditions that for me, that form the other person. And of course, we cannot encounter and know all the conditions that form the, or that form the other person. But when I meet the person or when I meet myself, do I meet the whole person or do I meet a little bit of it? And within that, you have another thing. And then you can, we can again link contact, feeling tone, perception and anatta, or emptiness. And this, what was mentioned was, you hear a word. I mean, what is a word? I would say it's fairly non-existent. I mean, it exists, but for a very short period. I mean, even the longest word you have in the English language, you say it, and it's gone. So in a way, you have these words that, I mean, fortunately here you are in silence, so you know you have a respite from it. This person, I think, is great. You know, you don't have to send them out. You don't have to receive them. But don't worry, on the Saturday morning, you can have lots of them. So you hear a word, and what do you do with it? So you have contact. You see, let's say, I look at you, and I look at you very nicely, really nicely. <laughs> I look at you very profoundly, nicely, and I say, you are all awakened. Oh, Martin said, I'm awakened. <laughs> Great. When I get the when do I get the Rolls Royce and the disciple? <laughs> or I look at you a little dour. Well, well, well. <laughs> you are all stupid. <gasps> I mean the two words. I mean you're going to have a different feeling toward to them, aren't you? Awakened, stupid, you don't get the same, I mean, same contact, you hear a word, then you have the feeling tone, one is a little more pleasant than the other, but it's gone, it's gone. But we might be sitting in meditation and suddenly we think, he said this, Two years ago, how could he say this? This is so nasty. And actually, it feels extremely painful. 
And to me, I think anatta is about that too, not self. How can I receive a word with creative, wise compassion? My first question would be, is it saying something about me? Or is it saying something about the other person? Do I need to buy it? You know, the other day, I went to the market and I bought some apple. And it's a lady who gave me the apple. I was not able to choose them. So I come back home, I took out the apples and one. On one side was good, on the other side, not. I thought, oh, she got me. <laughs> if I had chosen, I would not have taken that one. But to me, it's a bit the same as with the words. When somebody says something to me, it's a bit like if I am at the veggie shop, you know? What if it's not a nice one? I leave it there. But we don't do that. I mean, what is interesting, we have a very weird way with words. Like somebody comes to you and says, oh, you're fantastic, you are wonderful. And you say, no, 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 not really, not really. <laughs> I mean, why? This is a weird word. Well, they come, they're saying, you know, that you're wonderful. You should say, oh, thank you. You know, and then you have a good feeling tone, and they have a good feeling tone. It's very strange that what we do with praise. But then what we do with blame is a bit the same. What? Not really? How can you? This is two winds, praise and blame. And the, this is totally about contact, feeling, tone, and perception, and anatta. What do I do with praise? What do I do with blame? If the person thinks you are wonderful, I think accept it. Doesn't mean you are wonderful 100% all the time. That would not be anatta. And if the person say you made a mistake, the question, did you? If you did not, then you can leave it with them. If you did, then maybe you have to understand what happened. How can I work with this? And so, to me, in a way, in daily life, this is really a great exploration. Is really contact, feeling tone, and perception with words, even in terms of what we hear on the radio, on what we hear on TV, and then from that, Nowadays, actually, you could nearly say the written words, but not in a book, the written word on Twitter, on Facebook, or whatever. I'm uh, on Twitter, and I find it fascinating, everybody getting excited about this or that, and kind of like... And so, in a way, now you have the written word. And then, if you... Of course, I think it's good to kind of be creative, wise, and compassionate when we write and careful. But how do we take it? I think it's kind of also what we do to ourselves. But also, of course, what we do to others. And I think that's where, again, Anatta comes in. And this is one of the things very early on 
in uh, being married to Stephen, I found myself many years ago, because we've been married for 30 years, I think now, and I found myself talking to him in a very strange tone. <laughs> and I thought, but this is like my mother. <laughs> and I thought, did I like it when my mother said it this way? I thought, no, I did not like it at all. And I thought, well, then if I did not like it, I should not do it either. So it's kind of looking. How do, I mean, I'll talk more about this tomorrow, after tomorrow, but about appropriate speech. And really, in terms of the feeling tone of myself, but of the other person, also the perception of the other person. So, of course, there is an attar of what we receive, but I think there is also the wise concern for how is it going to be received? How is it going to be heard? So that's the other aspect of it. Because in a way, I think that the problem, if you say not self, emptiness, then in a way you have the impression that, oh, who cares? I don't need to be compassionate. I think we have to be very careful there. That actually, on the contrary, if you really understood this, we need even more compassion in the way we relate, in the way we speak, in the way we respond. So, that's what I want to say. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.